Welcome again. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, we've actually been in a series in the book of 1 John. And so 1 John is basically this account that was written by a person named John who was actually an eyewitness to the risen, resurrected Jesus, who's basically the founder of Christianity and what we base our faith, our entire faith around. So he actually had witnessed this Jesus and he's writing to the early church about what does life with Jesus look like? Now, this is so unique because you have to understand, Jewish was this, uh, Jesus was this Jewish carpenter of a marginalized group that was being oppressed by the Romans. And so if you, if you can imagine then, there's this new offshoot religion that's kind of splintering off of Judaism. It's, and, and it's about following this Jesus guy who's this carpenter, who people are like wondering, who in the world is this person? He's this carpenter, and the rumors are that he's dead, and he rose again from the dead. And somehow he's starting this new movement, this new way of Jesus that is so different than Judaism, and it's different than any other conception of the world world religion, religions. And so John is actually given this presentation of what is God really like? And today's topic of, of what is God really like? That's what I'd like to explore with you today because this fundamental question of what is God truly like is a question that whether it's in the ancient world or whether it's today, every single human being at one point has wrestled with questions about God, about transcendence, uh, about what is God, and if, if God does exist, what is he truly like? What, whatever your background might be, whether you're a Christian, you're atheist, you're agnostic, I'm so glad you're here because we're wrestling with these truths, these questions that I believe that every human has wrestled with. Now, in the book of John, we've talked about how the theme that he's constantly talking about is this theme of light versus darkness, how following Jesus is walking in the light versus in darkness. And last week, we talked about how there's these two sides of the same coin, and it's basically love and truth or truth and love, how faith is something and how Jesus is someone who embodies both truth. So it's not like Christians or people who are somehow parking our brains at the door and forgetting like, uh, oh yeah, like things that don't necessarily make sense or philosophically don't make sense, but instead we believe that it's founded on truth and this is who Jesus is. But we also believe that Jesus also embodies love. That it's not only this truth bomb that's supposed to overwhelm us, but instead that we get captured up into this love story. Love and truth, truth and love, these are both sides to the same coin. And we've been talking about how in 1 John, um, how life with Jesus is introduced to us. And as we, as we think about this, every single human being, as I mentioned before, wrestle with these fundamental questions of human existence. Here's some that I would like to propose to you. For, for instance, people throughout human history have wrestled with the question of suffering. Like, why do bad things happen? You've probably wrestled with that. It doesn't matter what your religious background is. Or you've wrestled with death. Why do people die? What happens after death? Again, you don't even have to be a Christian. People have wrestled with these existential questions. Another one, another topic, for instance, is the topic of eternity. What happens after I die? Is there something beyond the material world that we wrestle with that is true, that we have to look forward to, or that we're looking to avoid? You see, every single human wrestles with these different questions. Now, in the ancient world, people, because they wrestled with these questions of suffering, of evil, of death, and of eternity, they came up with these conceptions of God, of what God would truly be like. Why? Because they themselves were wrestling with these questions of suffering. So for, for instance, if I was someone who was a farmer in the ancient world, and for whatever reason there was a famine that would hit the land, all of a sudden now I'm wondering why in the world are the gods, people that, things that are beyond my control as a human being, why are these things befalling me as a farmer? 
Do you see how now all of a sudden people begin to grow these conceptions of what does the transcendent, what is he like? Or what is this being like? Or there were uh, experiences of evil and suffering that they would actually experience with one another, whether it was evil and battles and conflicts that would happen. And they needed some sort of God when it came to them and their people versus them, those people and those other people. They needed a God who was on their behalf, a God who would fight on their behalf. Now, this conception of God, this conception of God who's a warrior, who's on our side, who's basically going to fight on our behalf, this is a God that today we probably have very similar conceptions of like, we want our God to basically be better than those gods. We want gods to enact justice against uh, wherever there might be injustice. Now, in the ancient world, this belief that there were these gods was all around. These gods that were often in conflict with one another that were battling, whether it was on behalf of injustice or a god who was basically going to enact his own will and his wrath on the people around them. So as a result, the way that people believed about God or their conceptions of God was marked by this view that God was angry that God was out to get us, that God was this fighter warrior God. So for instance, there's this uh, carving. This carving actually is a carving of an ancient Babylonian creation myth um, called the Enuma Elish. Now the Enuma Elish is basically a story of this God Marduk who's constantly in battle, trying to battle the other gods, trying to gain supremacy over the gods. And so as a result, this creation myth from the ancient world is this depiction of a god who is a god of conflict, a god of warfare, a god who's out to show the other gods that I'm stronger than everyone else. Uh, Here's another depiction of a god, and this god is the god from the Greek myths, uh, god Zeus. You've probably heard of Zeus before in the Greek myths. Zeus is someone, and if you notice, Zeus is actually the god of the sky and of thunder. And if you know anything about Greek myths, you know that there's also lots of warfare and battles happening in the Greek myths. And Zeus is often at the center of a lot of them. Zeus, notice in his right hand what he has in his hand. Uh, No, that's not a piece of asparagus. That is actually, that is actually a thunderbolt. Why? Because he's the god of the sky and of thunder. And this Greek god, Zeus, is someone who is out to enact his own power to to basically show everyone that he's the god of all gods. You see Zeus in Greek myths be at conflict with other gods. You see him in conflict with uh, with human beings. Now, both in Babylon as well as in the ancient world, these conceptions with God, these are very common conceptions of what God is like. This conception of a God who is angry, a a God who is out to get us, a God who is um, uh, against us, and a God who is basically a wrathful God, a God with a thunderbolt in his hand. Now, again, the reason why there were these conceptions of God, because, again, there were things, there was suffering, there was death that would happen to the human experience, where we begin to wonder, in the transcendent realm, in the immaterial realm, if there is a God, this God must be someone who basically plays on the whims that we need to sacrifice to, that we need to please. Because if we don't, this God with a thunderbolt is out to get us. Or we believe that there's a God, and we we want to believe that there's a God out there that's going to, again, fight on behalf of our injustices. Now, that's the part of a God, of a warrior God, that all of us would agree on. Yes, we want that kind of God, a God who's going to fight against injustices. But nonetheless, what we see here, then, is that the early ancient depictions of what God is truly like is a God is a God who's out to get us. Uh, You know, growing up... um, 
I grew up in an immigrant family, and my father was actually the product of war-torn Korea, and he grew up without his father. His father died in the Korean War, and so he has no memories of his dad. And so my dad, he's just got this ethic about him, and he's got this way about him where he's this hard-driving immigrant hustle. Like, that describes my dad best. Um, my earliest memories of my dad are just that he was angry a lot, and he worked a lot. And so I remember when he would come home, um, I would be so fearful of whenever he came home. In fact, all of us, I had three brothers, so there were four of us brothers, and whenever my father would come home, we would all signal to each other, Dad's home, Dad's home! And all of us would scatter because of fear. Later on, I would realize in my relationship with my dad, he worked so tirelessly, and he endured so much racism as a result of kind of his thick accent and being in this country, and yet still trying to work hard and not make a kind of uh, a scene about things, that he would end up absorbing so much hostility for him himself, that he would come home so tired and angry and beat up that, of course, he would enact all sorts of this pent-up rage at home. And so we were very fearful of my dad. And in fact, my dad, I mean, to this day, what's the craziest thing is Tina knows this too. Whenever we go and visit my parents at home, uh, I'm a, I'm a, grown man and uh, <laughs> you know at least that's what Tina reminds me and uh, so I'm like this grown man and like when my dad when my dad comes home like if he opens the door like there's this part of me like I kind of jump up and I, I she go and she looks at me she's like you're a grown man <laughs> I'm like I know uh, the reason why is because, again, the, the primary emotion for me with my dad was one of fear, incredible fearfulness, because I just knew him to be someone who was violent. And I felt like I was constantly at odds, and if I didn't measure up, that somehow that I was going to be punished. You know, and as, as I think about these conceptions of God, I mean, so many conceptions of God. There are so many things that can shape you and I, our different conceptions of God, whether it's in the ancient world, whether the rain doesn't fall, and, and as a result, it affects the agriculture, or, or whether we're, we're, we think of gods as gods in conflict and in warfare all the time. It makes sense why in the ancient world, with the suffering and evil that every human being ever experiences, they would have these conceptions of gods as being warlike and conflict-like. And for me, my conception of God being shaped so deeply by a father who was so stern and such a taskmaster. I believed him to be, I believed God to be someone who also was there to enact judgment and justice and violence. And so before God, my primary emotion when it came to God was this emotion of like fear, of absolute fear. Now, I know it's Father's Day, and some of you are like, why are you sharing this on Father's Day? Uh, and here's what I want you to know. I want you, like, tons, hours of therapy and working through this with uh, my counselor and spiritual directors, and even with my dad. My relationship with my dad is as good as it's ever been. But still, there's the vestiges of those memories that still impact me and influence me today. And so when, it, when I ask the question to myself of my own upbringing, what is God like? I mean, it's so easy for me to gravitate towards the image of a God who is warlike, a God who is in conflict, or who at least likes to be in conflict. That's what I thought about my dad. Now, here's what's so explosive about what John is doing, because John is writing to the early church, and he's trying to basically present, again, a brand new way of thinking about what God is truly like. And this whole book, this letter that John is writing, he's been introducing these concepts of light and darkness about God and what God is truly like. And it's found in the person of Jesus. 
And, and so this is why it's so explosive when John writes this. He says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Turn to your neighbor, give them a Wakanda forever, and say, God is love. Do that real quick. God is love. Now, do you see how explosive this is? Because now, all of a sudden, John is introducing this theme of, you want to know what God is truly like? It's not the Enuma Elish God of Marduk who's constantly in conflict, or Zeus who has a thunderbolt in his hand. This is not what God is like. Here's what I want you to know. God is love. And if you don't get it the first time, look at what he says throughout the passage. I underlined love every single time. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, isn't this startling? Here, what John is basically introducing is he's introducing this view of God who is not a wrathful, angry, vengeful God who is out to get you and out to get me. He says that God is actually a God of unconditional love. This is what God is like. And he's introducing this way of thinking about God, conceptualizing about God. Maybe you thought and maybe you heard of a God who's, who's out to strike fear into your hearts. And he says, no, no, no. You want, you want to know what God is like? God is a God of love. And if you ever doubted that love, I want you to know that this God is a God who would send his son because of his love to die on your behalf. Even if, even when you may not have wanted it, he does it because he wants to demonstrate his love for you. Now, overwhelmingly, John keeps bringing this up. Why does he mention it so often? He's mentioning it so often to heal all the images of God that perhaps you and I and in the ancient world have had. You see, because these conceptions of God as a God who is a God full of conflict or God full of anger. It's not only an ancient kind of way of seeing God. It's, it's the way that we see God today. And today, what John is basically writing for people for all time, he says, this is what I want you to know. If you want to know what God is like, God is a God of love. Now, there's another passage in a book at the end of the scriptures called the book of Revelation. Now, Revelation is actually this prophetic apocalyptic revelation. And basically what it means is the book of Revelation was written as John, who's, uh, uh, we don't know if this is the same John or if it's a different John. Many similar themes appear both in 1 John as well as in the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, it's written because John is actually exiled to an island of Patmos. The people, the early Christians are being persecuted during this time. And during this time, John... While he's, while he's praying and he's seeking God and he's wondering, gosh, this Christianity thing, it looks like it's going to be snuffed out just like that because we're being persecuted. I'm stuck, exiled on an island. There's no hope for me. So if you could imagine John in the middle of this, he gets this vision and this is what the book of Revelation is about. He gets this vision from God and this is why it's called the book of Revelation. It's a revelation of God. And in this revelation, it's basically uh, the, apocalypse, the apocalyptic literature is a revelation 
revelation of what's happening in the cosmic world that relates to our world today. So there's all sorts of images in the book of Revelation of beasts and of dragons and of seals and of scrolls and all of these things are basically to communicate a deeper truth about what's happening in this world. But all these allegories are meant to basically relate to today. Now there comes this scene in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, where basically God is revealing himself to John, and John sees this vision. And this question reverberates throughout kind of the cosmos. And the question is, who can open this scroll? Now, scholars, as they kind of think about the allegory of what this scroll means, the scroll is basically the enacting, if you can imagine. So John is someone. In the world around him, he's exiled. The people of God are suffering, they're being persecuted, and so in the midst of this, basically he has this vision, and in the vision it's, if someone can open this scroll, all the injustices and the evils of the world will be eradicated, and God's kingdom will come. So this is the image in Revelation chapter 5. John sees this vision, and basically this question reverberates. Who's going to open this scroll? Because when this scroll is open, all of humanity will celebrate this, because in this moment we know that God will win. Now, here's what happens in the book of Revelation. Check this out. It's such a beautiful scene. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice. Here's this question. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But look at what happens. But no one in heaven or on earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And it says, I wept and I wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Now, why does he weep? He weeps because he's someone who's who's lost all sense of hope. He's wondering, God, when are you going to come? When are you going to change the world? All the racism, all the sexism, all the ways in which this world has violated the ways that you've commanded us to live by. When are you going to wipe away every tear? When are you going to change things? And it says he weeps and he weeps. It's this image of, he's like heaving. He's like, he's uncontrollable weeping. Who in the world can open this scroll? Now, what's so amazing is it says, one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Hey, chill out, John. I got this. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and it's seven seals. I mean, can you imagine? So here John is, right? He's got this vision and he's basically like, who's going to open this scroll? No one is found worthy. So he starts to weep and weep. he starts to heave. He starts to cry out. No one is able. And the elder basically says, hey, hey, listen, listen. I want you to know there is someone who's worthy. It's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Like here's this image of a lion. I mean, yeah. We all love lions, right? Because we're from New York. (laughs) Big teeth. King of the jungle. Lion. I mean, this is what we need, right? We need a warrior God. We need a warrior God to come on our behalf. We need a lion God. If anyone's going to change the world, it's going to be the lion. And this is what he hears. The elder basically says, behold, the lion. I mean, and I can imagine for John, he's like, the lion? That's who we need. But look at what this passage would go on to say. 
So he hears about a lion. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You know, what's amazing is that the passage would go on talking about how they would sing this song, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Now, in case you were wondering what a lamb looks like, this is, this is what a lamb looks like. I don't think I want a lamb with me in battle. Uh, I really prefer the lion. <laughs> Now, what's, this, what's going on here with these images? And maybe these images are somewhat new to you. Why, why this lion and lamb juxtaposition? What's going on here? You see, Jesus is often remarked in scriptures as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And see, the conception of, of God, yes, we want a lion! And yes, that is what God is like. God is a lion. A lion with power and ferocity. A lion who has come to eradicate evil and suffering. But see, the early Christians would realize that not only is God a lion, but he's also a lamb. A lamb who was slain. A God who would come not to simply conquer over but a God who had come to lay his life down. A God who had come to show you and me that what God is like is not simply a lion, a warrior, but a God of love. A God who would love you and me enough that he would lay down his life so that you might have life. A God who would show you that the way of victory is not achieve more, be better, outlast the entire competition, but a God who would invite you to a life of believing in a God who would give his very life so that you might have it. And that this is what love is. And this is who God is. God is a God of love. You know what's so amazing is that John would actually go on and check out what he would write. He would say, there is no fear in love because perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made in perfect Love. Do you, do you see how the repercussions of what God is like changes everything for us? Because now, the way that we live our lives, and in the ancient world, and even in the world today, it's not a life that's motivated by fear. Fear of not having enough. Fear of not achieving enough. Fear of not being the best, you overachieving New Yorkers. Fear of not pleasing enough, fear of not being enough. And yet, 
here's what John is basically saying. Like, don't you understand? Once you've understood that this is a God of love, a God who would give his life for you, a God who would not withhold anything for you, if this is what God is like, then all the financial worries that you might have today, can you imagine? There's a God in heaven who is so for you and who is so in love with you, he would give his very life for you. All the anxieties you feel about your own career, all the ways that you might be wrestling with your own kind of relationship status, all the fears that we might have over our children or our teenagers, all of the ways in which we might be worried or be living in fear, all of the ways in which my own conceptions of my own dad and my relationship with my dad could somehow make me someone who's so afraid of doing the right thing and so afraid of being in relationship with God and having this conception. Like, do you realize what John is doing is he's basically saying, don't you understand? See, once, once you can begin to see that this God is not a vindictive God who's out to get you and out to get me, but instead he's a God who would actually give his life for you so that you might know a love that can free us from the fears that we carry. Because perfect love casts out all fear. We love because he first loved us. I mean, one of the questions that I love to ask couples, you know, who I, use, I like to ask them this question. Who liked who first? And I, I love to ask this because there's always this giggling, this kind of moment. And uh, we can never agree on the same story, though, whenever that happens, you know. But one of the reasons why I like asking that question is because, you know, you know how it is in a relationship. Usually the first person who takes this step of saying, hey, I like you, <laughs> right? There's that moment of just incredible awkwardness and that moment of vulnerability where I take the first step in saying, hey, uh, I kind of dig you, and let's go out on a date. Okay, maybe they don't, people don't say that, but nonetheless, you know what I'm talking about. You know, right? Like, the person who makes the first step is the one who's vulnerable first. It takes something to have that vulnerability to be someone who makes the first move. And here's what John is basically saying. Hey, no matter where you are with God, no matter where you are with God today, did you know that God loved you first? And he's making the first move. He's the one that's becoming vulnerable first. And you might say, well, I, I don't know if he really loves me. You know, maybe he has a thunderbolt in his hand. And then I'm like, no, 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 don't you understand? This is what John is trying to write to these early believers and to others in the ancient world. He's trying to tell them, no, no, God, the God that you thought of is not the God of Jesus Christ who actually loves you. And guess what? He loves us first. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is this passage in the book of Revelation where it basically says... Um, Let's see. Shervin, can we go to the next slide? Revelation 3.20. Um, it basically says, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And one of the reasons why I love this uh, passage is because it talks about, it's that first, basically God is making the first step. He's the one knocking on the door. He's the one saying like, Hey, 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 I'm right here. My love for you is available. I'm right here. I'm asking you out. I'm making myself vulnerable. You know, there's this image from 1851. It's a painting that was done by this British uh, painter named William Hunt. And it's a painting um, called, Shervin, can we go to the next slide? Um, it's a painting called Jesus Standing at the Door. Now, one of the things, and you might not be able to see it as clearly here, one of the things about this painting is that Jesus is actually standing at the door, and you know he's Jesus because he's got this crown of thorns on his head. And he's knocking on the door. 
One of the things that the painter remarked about this painting is that if you notice on the door outside, though, it's a door where there's no door handle on the outside. Because the door handle is only on the inside. And there's Jesus just, just knocking on the door. Just waiting. Not, not bull rushing the door. Not overwhelming the door. Not screaming through the door. He's just knocking. And waiting. For you. For me. To open the door. To share a meal. To share conversation. To heal in your mind and in your heart and in my mind and in my heart what God is truly like. To reveal himself to be a God who's loved you from the start and a God who loves you now.